0: Have you guys ever heard of it, like somebody saying that if you ever have to um, give someone correction, if you have to tell somebody that they're doing something wrong, that you should probably start with telling them that they're doing something right first. And that kind of softens the blow a little bit. Before you tell them what they're doing wrong, you're able to tell them some things that they're doing right. It's kind of like whenever you say, I have good news and I have bad news, which one do you want first? Most of the time, people want the good news first because it will soften the blow of whatever the bad news is. But James apparently never got this memo that you should soften the blow before he starts just going in and telling them all the things that they need to work on and how they should live their lives as Christians. He doesn't soften the blow at all. He doesn't beat around the bush, he just tells it like it is. And from the second sentence of the letter of James, he is already bringing the heat. So when you read the book of James, you have to get ready because it's probably going to step on your toes a little bit. And for some of us, it's gonna step on our toes a lot. So before I get too far in, I just wanna start with prayer and ask that God would lead us and that his Holy Spirit would guide us on how we should apply this to our lives. So let's start with prayer. God, I thank you so much for today I thank you for the opportunity that you've given us as a church family to worship together. And God, as we open your word this morning, I ask that the Holy Spirit would move within our hearts. And I pray that the words that I share would come directly from you, and that you would show each one of us how we ought to apply the things that we hear this morning. And I want to ask that you would pray for me, that God would speak through me, and that it would make sense. Now, I want you to pray for yourself that God would speak to you this morning. God, we love you, and we trust you. Amen. If you have your Bible, or if you're using the Bible app, you can go ahead and turn to James chapter 2. It'll be on the screens, but before we read the section of Scripture today, I want to give you a little bit of background. So G- so James was the half-brother of Jesus. They had the same mom Uh, Different dads because Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, so different dads. But they were half-brothers, and because they were brothers, they likely had a very close relationship. And so as you read through the book of James, a lot of the things that James is going to teach are echoes of things that Jesus himself taught. And after Jesus had returned into heaven, Christians began to experience a lot of persecution. And as a result of that persecution, Christians spread all over the nation. And so James is a letter written to Christians who were scattered as a result of that persecution. And the theme of the book of James is that unless we put our faith into action, it is useless. So with that understanding, I want to read the big chunk of what we're gonna go through and then we'll break it down after that. So let's read the whole thing. As we read it, I just want you to know two things. Number one, this is one of the most difficult passages in scripture And number two, it's one of the most argued passages in the Bible, so let's read it. James chapter two, verse 14 through 20 says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that type, kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing, How foolish can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? So James has some pretty hard-hitting stuff in this passage, so I want to break it down. So this whole book of James, the theme I've mentioned before, is it's this theme of talking versus doing, faith versus actions. Or in some translations, it says faith versus works, So apparently there were some people that James was writing to that thought that it was enough or thought that it was okay to just claim to have faith in God. And their actions didn't reflect that. What they said and what they did were two completely different things. Apparently they claimed to be Christians, but there was no real difference or change in the way that they lived their life. This isn't something that I think just the people that James was writing to. It's just not a first century problem. This is something that I see all the time. People who claim with their mouth to have faith, but their actions show no proof or no evidence to back up that claim. And so to address this issue among Christians, in verse 14, James starts by asking two rhetorical questions that have implied answers. And I want to show you those two questions again. I'll I'll read them to you. It's in verse 14. It says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? That's the first question. The second question, can that type of faith save anyone? And so just to paraphrase his question, he says this, does it do any good at all, any good when a person claims to have faith with their mouth but then has no actions? And the implied answer is no. No. A faith without action is no good. It is pointless, it is useless, it is dead. There is no value in it. So James is saying that just talking about faith is not enough. Just telling people that you're a Christian is not enough. Just saying that you believe in God is not enough just saying that you remember getting baptized at one point or remember that you responded to an altar call at summer camp many years ago that's not enough in itself. He says that just repeating a prayer back, just the words themselves are not enough to save you. Because according to this passage he's saying that unless your faith results in good action or action or good works then it is useless. If your faith does not change the way that you live, then your faith is pointless. It is empty. Um, So that's the first rhetorical question. The second rhetorical question is, he says, and this one's a little bit more in your face, he says, can this type of faith save anyone? And again, the implied answer is no. Not only is a faith that does not result in action useless, James is saying that this type of faith does not save you. So it is possible and likely that there are people in churches or watching online who claim to have faith, but they are not saved. They have a useless, empty, and worthless faith. Their faith has not changed the way that they act. It hasn't changed the things that they do. It has not changed the places they go. It has not changed the way that they treat people. And James is saying that a person who has a faith without good deeds is not saved. And that should make us squirm a little bit. That might make some of you a little bit uncomfortable. And I think that the reason why James asks these two questions is because he knew that we would need to consider this. We need to consider that if it is possible for a person to claim to have faith but not actually have it, how are we supposed to know if a person has real, authentic faith? And the answer, according to James, is by the way they live their life. Jesus calls this fruit. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, this is what he says. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the, the will of my Father in heaven. So in this passage, Jesus says the way that you can identify a person is by their actions, a.k.a. their fruit, How a person lives their lives shows what they believe. So what Jesus is saying is that real, authentic faith will naturally produce fruit. If you have real faith, you will put that into action. You will live it out by the way that you live your life. Now, I'm not a tree expert, but if you and I were to go on a walk, hypothetically, because we don't have these in Odessa. But if you and I were to hypothetically walk through this tree orchard where there were hundreds and hundreds of orange trees, and every tree was filled with lots and lots of oranges. It was just beautiful. Like, you know, like whenever you get like Tropicana and there's a picture of an orange grove on there and there's lots of trees on there. Imagine that. Picture that with me. And we're walking down these rows of orange trees, and you stop and you point up to an orange tree and you say, hey, Jonathan, that's an apple tree. I wouldn't believe you because it is covered in oranges, I don't have to take a tree sample, cut off a little piece of that tree, take it to a scientist and say, hey, could you test the genetics of this tree and tell me what kind of tree it is? I don't have to do that because the fruit on the tree tells me the type of tree that it is. And in a similar way, James is saying that if a person claims to be a Christian, but their life has no fruit or actions to back it up, then they are not really a Christian. So what does that look like? What does it look like to live out our faith? What does it mean for our faith and our actions to work together? And James knew that we would ask that question. And so in the next couple verses, verse 15 through 17, he's going to give this hypothetical situation to illustrate what it looks like for faith and actions to work together. And this is what he says, verse 15. Suppose you see a brother or sister that has no food or clothing and you say goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. So James lays out this hypothetical situation, and he says, if you have a person who claims to be a Christian, and that person sees another Christian, a brother or sister in the faith, and they, they, that person has no food and no clothing. And, and I just wanna basically point out that he doesn't say that this person doesn't have like the best clothes, like the name brand clothes. He says no clothing, uh, naked. And he says he has no food. He doesn't even have the basic necessities of life. And James says that if you see that person, if, if you say to them, have a good day, stay warm, enjoy dinner, God bless you, brother. If you see that and you don't do something to help, then that means that something is critically wrong with your faith. Let that sink in for a second. Don't miss what James is saying. The problem with not doing something to help is that there's this obvious inconsistency between what you say you believe and your actions. You can't claim to love God. But then if you see the need of a fellow brother or sister in Christ, if you don't do something to help, then that means that there's this obvious inconsistency in your faith. A good example, a general example of inconsistencies is online shopping. Have have you ever uh, gone shopping online, like maybe Amazon or something, and, and what you thought that you were ordering What actually came in the mail is way, 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 way different than what you expected. Um, A couple of years ago, um, our sons, Caden and Austin, they both got sick at the exact same time. They probably had strep or something like that. Um, And they both got sick at the exact same time. So we took them to the doctor um, and we got to the doctor. The doctor put them on a liquid medicine and they had to take it for like 10 days straight three times a day, like morning lunch and, and dinner time, they had to take this medicine. And when we went to the pharmacy to get the prescription filled, they gave us these little bitty syringes, you know, the kind that you put kids' medicine in and then you squirt it in their mouth. They had, they had to take medicine by these little uh, syringes three times a day. And so because there was two sons, both sick at the same time, every time we had to give them medicine, like we were going through the, the supply that the The pharmacy had given us like that fast, and we were having to, every time we gave the medicine, we were having to wash these syringes, and it just got old after a little while, and so Tiffany had this brilliant idea. She said, hey, Jonathan, what if I go online, and I see if I can find these plastic syringes like in bulk, and then every time that we have to give the boys medicine, rather than wash these things, we just throw them away. And I said, that is a brilliant idea. I love it. So she goes on Amazon and she finds this listing where she can buy 60 of these things for like just a couple dollars. And we're like, yes, buy it. And so she orders it. Two days later, um, a package comes in the mail from Amazon. And she's like, Jonathan, the syringes are here. I was like, hallelujah. No more washing syringes. And so she opens the package and this is inside. Uh, One... One large 60-milliliter syringe, not, not 60 small syringes, one large. You can't give a kid medicine with this. Come here, Caden. You know, this is for like giving horses medicine or something. Um, and so I was like, we can't use that. But the, the reality is, is that when Tiffany thought the description for the Amazon uh, item, she thought she was getting 60 of these when really she was just getting one 60-milliliter syringe of this. And, and, and In a similar way, um, James is saying in this passage, you can't claim to have faith in God, but then if you see a person in need, don't do something about it to help. You have to have your words and your actions together, working together. They have to line up. If they don't, then your faith is useless. There's inconsistencies if it doesn't. Listen to what John, 1 John three seventeen and 18 says, If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other, but let us show the truth by our actions. Again, true faith leads to action. It's not enough to just say that you love God. It's not enough to just say that you love other people. You have to show it. And here's why I believe that this is such a big deal to God. Because every single one of us in this room has been blessed by God. Every one of us has been blessed far beyond what we deserve. But here's something that I want for you to think about God does not pour blessings into your life so that you can stockpile those blessings. He does not give us blessings so that we can keep increasing the size of our home, our car, our barn, our boat, our 401k. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with any of those things. But what I am saying is that just trying to accumulate more and more and more things is not the primary reason for which you have been blessed by God. You have been blessed by God so that you can live an open-handed life that shows that you are not enslaved to the blessings of God, but instead you are grateful for them and you find ways to use those blessings to bless other people. So many of us have a tendency to become spiritually constipated where when God blesses us, those blessings stop with us. We hold so tightly to those things. We don't let them go to bless the people around us. And we think, well, this is my house, and this is my car, and this is my money, and this is my time. But let me remind you that God is the giver of all that you have. And if you have been blessed by God, and I know that all of you have, then it is your job to be the conduit by which God blesses you and then you let those blessings flow out to bless other people. Don't let God's blessings stop with you. Use them to bless others. That's why God told Abraham in Genesis 12, he says, I have blessed you so that you can be a blessing to others. So let's get back to what James said. He says, if your faith is alive and active, then when you see someone in need, especially a brother or sister in the faith, do something, do anything that you can to help them. But to the person who sees a need and does nothing, James says, your faith is dead. And I don't think that he could have used any more harsh language than that. Now, James knew that saying these things was instantly gonna put his readers in defensive mode because he knew that people would read this and say, well, but... That doesn't really apply to me, James. And so he knew that we would get defensive because that's just what people do. When we begin to feel like our toes are being stepped on, we start like justifying things. We start to to rationalize things. We try to make it seem like, well, that doesn't really apply to me. I I, I would guess that some of us even in this room are doing that a little bit. Like, yeah, but that doesn't really apply to me. So before we can start making excuses, James continues in verse 18 to refute that. And he says this. Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. Now this can be a tricky verse to understand, but here's what James is saying. You can't separate faith from actions. So many people think that faith and good works aren't connected, but the reality is, according to James, those two things are super glued together. Faith and actions are super glued together. There are people who think that it's possible to have faith in God without it really impacting the way that they live their day-to-day life. They think, okay, I can have faith in God. I can believe that God exists. I can believe that Jesus died on the cross. I, I can believe all of the things about God and about the Bible, but that doesn't really mean that it has to change much about how I live my life. I can do whatever I want, And other people might say, hey, it's great that you Christians are good Christians, but, you know, that's not really for me. Um, Y'all can do good things, but I'm not really interested in that. And I can just picture James looking at, at people who would say those things and saying, no, hold on. You guys are missing the point of what I'm trying to say. What James is saying is that you can't separate faith and actions, because a true, authentic, active faith impacts every single part of your life, especially your actions. You can't have one without the other. Think of faith in actions like the wings of a bird, okay? So just picture this with me. Let's just imagine that in this analogy, one wing is faith. So this wing over here will represent faith. And one wing represents actions. It doesn't matter how much I flap the faith wing. I believe in God. I am a Christian. I was baptized. No matter how hard a bird flaps one wing, they're not going to fly. And it doesn't matter how hard I flap the wing of action. I give to the needy. I go to church. I volunteer my time. Just flapping one wing on this side doesn't result in flapping. But whenever faith and actions work together, then in unison, then you can fly, then you can soar. And what James is saying is that good deeds without faith are useless. And faith without good deeds is useless. Both be, must be used in unison to give value. Let's transition, uh, verse 19. For me, this is the most terrifying and eye-opening verse in this whole passage. And this is what James says. You say you have faith, For you believe that there is one God, good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Now, many of the people that James was writing to probably grew up in Jewish homes, and Jewish people, uh, as a part of their faith tradition, They would have this tradition where they would recite this creed called the Shema. And the Shema was a reciting of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And reciting this creed was a way to remind the people of God who God was and what he had done for his people. And so they would recite this this creed back and forth. It'll be on the screens. It says this They would recite this daily Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so from an early age, if you were a Jewish child, it was drilled into your mind that in a world where everybody else believed in lots of gods, the, the Israelites believed that there was only one true God. And in light of that, listen to what James, when he drops this sentence, he says, you believe that there is one God? Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. So hold on a second. Think about this. James point blank calls out the Christians, and and he says, if you think that just believing that there's only one God is enough to save them, then you're off base. Apparently, they thought that having a knowledge of God was enough to save them. And James says, no, it's not. He said, even the demons believe that, and they tremble in terror. Have you ever thought about this? Did you know that demons believe in God? Like did you know that there's not a demon in the universe that's an atheist? Every single one of them fully acknowledges that God exists. Demons believe a lot of the same things that we believe. They believe in the existence of God. They believe that Jesus really was God's son. They believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They believe in heaven and hell. They believe that Jesus is the eternal judge. They believe that Jesus alone is able to save us. Listen to this quote. It'll be on the screen from David Platt. It says, I fear that countless men and women have bought into the soul damning idea that mere intellectual assent to the truth of God and Christ is enough to save. And the reality is that these people are no better off than the demons themselves. And here's something else about the demons is that not only do demons believe in God, they take it one step further and they tremble in terror. Not only do they have an intellectual knowledge about God, they also have a physical and emotional response to God by trembling in terror. So think about this. Think about this question. What is the difference between you and the demons? They believe. We say that we believe. So what is the difference? action. The difference between us and the demons has to be action. The demons, even though that they know that there is a God and they fear him, they refuse to transform their lives. They refuse to come under God's leadership. They refuse to put their head knowledge into action. They are unwilling to obey God. They have no fruit. So James is saying, don't be fooled just saying that you believe in a powerful God, all that does is put you on par with the demons. So many Christians have fallen into this trap of thinking that just believing in our head, that God, that, 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 that that's enough to save us. And James is saying, I'm sorry, but you, you, you've misunderstood here. And I think at this point, I know that, that I fight with this, that sometimes we get to this point in the passage and I think our inner legalist starts to activate and we start to think, okay, James, I get it. You're saying that faith without action or good deeds is dead and I don't want my faith to be dead. So just give me a list of things that I have to do in order to be saved. Like, to be a good Christian, do I need to go volunteer at the food bank more? Do I need to give more money to the church? Do I need to volunteer more at the church? We want this list, and we say, okay, James, I don't want a faith that is dead and useless. I want a, a strong faith, so just give me a list of things that I need to do, and I'll go do those things. And if we think this way, then again, we've totally missed what James is saying. As I mentioned at the beginning, this is one of the most debated scriptures and it's most likely because many people misunderstand what James is saying here. You have to understand what James is not saying to understand what he is saying. James is not saying that works or good deeds is what saves you. Faith is not a checklist of things that you have to do in order to get to heaven. But excuse me. But with that said... It can get confusing to understand what James is saying compared to what other parts of the Bible teach. At first glance, it can seem like what James is teaching here seems to contradict with what other verses in the Bible are teaching about salvation and how, what it means to be saved. Specifically, it's difficult to kind of work through what that means in light of what Paul wrote in Romans. So I want to show you what I mean. It'll be on the screen. I want to show you what James chapter 2, verse 17 and 24, side by side with what Paul says in Romans three twenty eight. they seem to contradict, I want to break that down for you. James chapter 2, verse 20, 17 and 24 says, from James, so you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. So you see, we are shown to be made right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. But then... Paul says in Romans 3, uh, verse 28, he says, so we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. So when you put those two side by side, you're going, hold on. It seems like James appears to be saying that faith plus works saves us, and Paul appears to be saying that faith alone, apart from works, saves us. And so when we look at these two verses side by side, we wonder, which is right? Like, who's right? Is it James or is it Paul? Which one is right? And the answer is both. And I studied these passages until my head hurt, but here's what I learned. Uh, I don't believe that James and Paul are contradicting at all, but they are addressing two very different problems within the church In Romans, when Paul says that we are saved by faith and not by works, he is arguing against the false teaching that we can earn our way into heaven by the good things that we do, or in the context of Romans, by keeping the Old Testament law. And refutes that false teaching by explaining, no, you are saved by faith alone. Only the work of Jesus on the cross can save us. And our attempts to do good will never be able to get us into heaven because you can never be good enough. You can do a million good things, and it is never good enough to save you. We are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. And that's not just something that the people that Paul wrote to had a problem with. Many Christians today, even if we would not admit it, we believe that we can work our way into heaven. When I was in high school, some friends in my mind, we took a video camera and we just went all around Odessa. We had three different video cameras and we just said, hey, let's go out and record people and we, we will ask them one question. And the question we wanna ask is, how do you get to heaven? And so we went out, we recorded everybody's responses and we came back together and we saw what people said. And I'll never forget, there was this one guy that we recorded and we asked the question, how do you get to heaven? And this guy, his response was this, if I do more good things than bad things, I'll think I'll get in. And Paul in Romans 3 is saying, no, good things alone do not save you. Only a faith in Jesus saves you. But then James is addressing a completely different problem within the church. The people who James is writing to apparently thought that believing in God was easy. And that all we had to do is just acknowledge that God was real and that it didn't really matter how we lived our lives. They thought that we could do whatever we wanted as long as we believed that there was a God. And James says, no, faith is more than just acknowledging that God exists. Faith must be put into action. It must be accompanied by good works because if you really have faith, then you will obey God. So here's kind of where I landed. It'll be up on the screen. James, I believe, is saying this, that faith alone saves us. But faith is never alone. It always results in actions. Let me say that again. Faith alone saves us. But faith is never alone. It always results in actions. So if your faith does not result in living for God, then you really never had faith in the first place. I believe that truly that Paul and James agree they're just approaching it from completely different problems within the church, two different vantage points. And so James, the passage that we're looking at, doesn't give a checklist of things that we have to do to save us because works don't save us. Works are the natural overflow of real faith. We are saved by faith, but faith will always result in action. So let's move on. We're gonna read the next passage, which is verses 21 through 26. And, and James is gonna give two examples of Bible characters that show us what it looks like for faith and actions to work together. So James 2, starting in verse 21. He says, don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be made right with God when his action, with, by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scriptures say. Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called a friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be made right with God by her actions. When she hid those messengers and sent them away safely by a different road, just as the body is dead without breath, and so faith is dead without breath. Good works. So James gives two Bible story examples uh, to illustrate his point that faith and actions always work together. And he tells us two Bible characters. The first uh, character that he uh, mentions is Abraham. It, It shouldn't surprise us. We know about Abraham. It's father Abraham. He had many sons. And many sons have Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. So if you didn't grow up in church, you may not know that song. If you did, you know what I'm talking about, but it doesn't, it makes perfect sense for Abraham to be the example of faith and actions working together. But what doesn't make sense is using Rahab the prostitute as an example of faith and actions working together. We don't have a song about Rahab. Like, Nobody sings a song in Sunday school, the Rahab the prostitute song. You don't because there's not one. And James could not have used two more opposite characters from the Bible to illustrate this point. Yet Rahab was a key piece of God's story, God's work among humanity to save us. And so James does this on purpose to illustrate this point. So let's start with Abraham. Most of you may know the story of Abraham, but if you don't, here's what happened. When Abraham was 75 years old, God made him a promise that his descendants would become a great nation, and that through his descendants, the entire world was going to be blessed. And then, 25 years later, 25 years later, Abraham's wife Sarah finally gave birth to the promised son named Isaac. Abraham must have uh, waited what seemed like forever for God to keep his promise. So imagine what it must have been like or felt like when God gives the most striking, confusing command when God tells Abraham, I want you to go and sacrifice your son Isaac. It didn't make any sense. Why would God ask Abraham to sacrifice the son that he had promised to Abraham? And even though it didn't make sense, Abraham put his faith into action and obeyed God. He put his son up on his donkey and he headed up the mountain. And that had to be so hard, especially because Isaac was old enough to ask questions. And so Isaac asked his dad, hey dad, where's the lamb that we're gonna sacrifice? And Abraham simply replied, the Lord will provide. And so they make their journey up the mountain. And the Bible says that when they reach the place of the sacrifice, Abraham builds an altar and then he begins to tie up his son. Now imagine this for a second. As a father, I can't even imagine the emotions that you would feel, the thoughts that would race through your mind. Yet as Abraham remembered the promise that God had made that his descendants would become a great nation and would bless the Lord, even though God's command did not make sense, he trusted in God that God would make a way. And Abraham prepared to sacrifice his son. At the last second, the Lord stepped in and said, stop. Don't do it. And when Abraham looked up, there was a ram caught in a bush not far away. And so Abraham went and took the ram and sacrificed the ram instead. And here's what I want you to know from Abraham's story. Abraham had real faith. How do we know? Because he obeyed God. His faith was not just talk, but it led to action. And then James tells the story of Rahab. Now, Rahab's story comes from a part of the Bible where the Israelite people were about to start taking over the promised land. And the first city that they had to conquer was the city of Jericho. And Rahab was a prostitute in the city of Jericho. And no little girl dreams of becoming a prostitute when they grow up. A person becomes a prostitute because of very evil and wicked and awful things have been done to you. You were used and abused. You were used as a commodity. You were treated like a soulless recreational vehicle. And in the time of Rahab, women were probably already treated like second-class citizens. So if normal women were treated without dignity and respect, can you imagine the type of treatment that Rahab had to endure? And in the story of Rahab, Joshua, who is the leader of God's people, he sends two spies into the city of Jericho to scout out the city. And Jericho was this huge fortified city with walls surrounding it. And Rahab had apparently heard the story of God's people and how God had helped his people escape from Egypt, and how he had had led his people to cross the Red Sea on dry land, and that God was helping them to win their battles. And Rahab, who was the least likely hero, she was not an Israelite, and she was far from perfect. She chooses to put her faith in God. And when the spies come into Jericho, she chooses to help them. And when the king of Jericho hears that there's these two spies in town, Rahab takes the spies and hides them and helps them to escape unharmed. And helping these spies put her life in great danger. And not just her life, but her whole family's life in danger. If the king had found out that Rahab was helping these two spies, she would have instantly been executed because that's treason. Treason. Her whole family would have been executed. So not only did she put her life in her own hands, she put her whole family's life in her hands to help these two spies. And just like Abraham, Rahab put her faith in action. She believed that God was real, and she showed that by her actions. She risked everything to help, these, to help God's people. And so James tells these two stories, Abraham and Rahab, to illustrate this point, that if you have faith, it will always lead to action. We can tell that Abraham and Rahab both had real faith because they showed it by what they did. Their actions prove that they loved God, that, they, that their faith was real. Their life produced fruit. So what does this mean for us? It means this. If Abraham's faith resulted in action and Rahab's faith resulted in action, then your faith and my faith must also result in action. But let me reiterate this. Good deeds don't save you. But to a person who has real faith, true faith, you will naturally desire to obey God and his commands, and good deeds will naturally flow from your life. And I hope that you can understand this. I can't reiterate this point enough. James is not telling us to try harder. He is not saying, hey, you Christians, you're not doing enough. You need to do more good things. He is not saying try harder. He is giving us a test of how to identify people who have real faith and how to identify people who have no faith at all. And we can try to dance around this truth all day long, but what James is saying is that if your faith does not result in action, then you don't have real faith. So having read this passage, I think that the whole reason that James includes this section is to give his readers a wake-up call. It is his way of saying, hey, I think a bunch of you think that you are saved, and you aren't. And my hope is that it can be a wake-up call for us. Church, maybe it's time that we evaluate our faith, and we see if we have a real faith. Maybe it's time to take a long look at our life and see if our faith has resulted in obedience. Has believing in God transformed our actions? And maybe for some of you during this time, maybe God's put it on your heart that Maybe you aren't living a life uh, that is real and authentic, and maybe it's time for you to cry out to God and begin today a genuine faith that results in action. And for some of us, maybe we've been all talk, and and we say with our lips that we believe in God, but it has not transformed the way that we live, and maybe it's time that we start putting our faith into action. Now, I'm going to close out our our time this morning with a response time, and I want to just explain something very quickly. Um, our tradition here at Grace is that like before COVID hit, we would uh, end our service after, after the sermon time and we would have a time where we would play a song and we would, our, our church elders would be up here and we would pray together and we would invite you that like, if you have, uh, if you want to talk with someone or pray with someone, you could come up here and our elders will be here. And, and our tradition at Grace, and it's a great tradition, I loved it, was that like when somebody would come up to pray, then like, a bunch of people will come around them and kind of gather around them and and pray with them. And that was great and so meaningful, but COVID happened. And uh, it's just not a wise thing for us to gather in large groups up here. But we also believe that it is important to give people an opportunity to respond to the word of God. And so we want to offer a response time, but it's gonna look a little bit different today. So let me walk you through what that looks like. Aaron Byford here in just a second is going to lead us in a song of worship. And we want you to use that time as we sing this song to think and pray and respond and, and, and think about how God is, what what maybe how you could apply what we've talked about today in your life. Do that right where you are. Pray, think, uh, sing with us right where you are. After that song, Aaron Byford is going to dismiss us. You will be dismissed to leave. But at that point, our elders will be available up here if you have uh, would like someone to pray with you. If, you, if you have questions or if you just need to ask Uh, talk to somebody about what God is doing in your life. Our elders and and church leaders will be up here at the front, and we want to invite you to respond however you need to respond. So I'm going to close in prayer, and then we'll continue in worship. God, my prayer right now is that the Holy Spirit would move among us. God, I'm asking that you would show us how to apply this message to our life. And God, I pray that we would not be a people who just know of you, but people with real faith that impact our actions. May we have a faith that results in action and that we would live for you every day. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for saving us from our sin. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.